shit. You're here. <laughs> you look so pretty. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. This is your girl, J-O-E. Back at you again with another episode of Shit Under My Nails. And, of course, this month is October. And I'm trying to come back to back with these murder, mystery, and mayhem month. And this is just where we get into each and every criminal's mind, their history, their upbringing, and things of that nature. So we want to make sure that we keep coming back to back with these bangers so that y'all can stay tuned. And of course, I told you more murders, more mysteries, more mayhem. And today's episode is officially called The Moore's Murder. All right, so today's episode is about actually two characters. Um, this week we're doing couples only, where we're getting to each and every history of each and every person. So we're talking about a murder called Moore's Murder. And basically it's about a young man by the name of Ian Bradley and a young lady by the name of Maria Hindley. Okay. I'm going to get into Ian first. Let's just check out his background. Ian um, was born in Scotland. And of course he was he went by the name of Ian Duncan. Um, he was born January the 2nd, 1938. And he was born to a mother by the name of Margaret Peggy Stewart. Um, of course, Miss Peggy, she was unmarried. Um, and she was a tea room waitress. They couldn't really identify um, Ian's dad. She, of course, said that it was a news anchor who basically died three months prior to um, Ian being born. Still, there is no report of who the official father was. Um, Miss Peggy, the mother of Ian, she couldn't have, uh, she didn't get enough help and support from family. So she ended up giving sweet little Ian to a uh, couple by the name of Mary and John Slogan. Um, the couple who adopted Ian, um, actually had four kids of their own. Uh, and of course, Ian took their last name for their family. So Ian became, instead of Ian Duncan, he became Ian Slogan. His mother continued to visit him within, like, within his childhood, so it wasn't a closed adoption. Um, of course, a couple of different authors that wrote about Ian basically stated that he took a liking into torturing animals um as he was younger um by the age of like nine his family reported that he he liked to be outdoors and basically a few months later his family decided to move to a bigger house in a different side of Scotland where um he was accepted into the Shawlands Academy. Um, it was a school for above average pupils, and it was something that he was actually taking a liking to a lot. Um, of course, in the academy, uh, the teachers, counselors, and pr uh, principal noticed that his behavior kind of sort of got worse. 
as he grew up in his teenage years of being in the academy. Um, he was in juvenile court twice for breaking in homes. He had left the academy at the age of 15 and ended up taking a job in Colvin. <laughs> Nine months later, he became uh, a butler's, a butcher's messenger boy. Um, he had a girlfriend at the time. His girlfriend's name was um, Evelyn Grant, but um, their relationship ended because he basically threatened her with a butter, with a butter knife after mm -hmm. she visited the dance with another boy. He, of course, again, was in court. Of course, he was in court so many times as a young boy from the ages 9 to 15. The judge basically knew his name. Um, he had nine charges against him. And shortly before his 17th uh, birthday, he was placed on probation. Um, conditions that he had to live with his biological mother. So he was placed back with Miss Peggy before the age of 17. And um, she basically moved to Manchester and married an Irish fruit um fruit merchant by the name of Patrick Brady. Um, Mr. Brady obviously gave Ian a job as a fruit porter at the Smithfield Marketing. And of course, Ian took his last name. So he had his last name changed at least three times already. Um, within a year of moving to Manchester, Bradley was caught with a sack of lead steel he had stole and was trying to smuggle it out, out of the market. He was sent to um, Strange Ways for about three months, which is a prison. Well, not even a prison. It was a juvenile hall as he was still under 18. Uh, he was sentenced to two years uh, in Brost for training. He was sent to a house called Loachman in London and the Hayville Brostel um, in the West Riding Yorkshire. After becoming drunk um, off the brew that he basically he made in the unit, he was released on November the 14th, 1957. And Ian returned to Manchester where he took on a laboring job, which he hated, of course, and was dismissed from jobs at the brewery that he worked in out in Hayfield. He decided he wanted to better himself after all the hell and chaos of his younger years. And because he wanted to better himself, he decided to obtain a set of instructional instructional manuals on bookkeeping from his local public library. And um, January 1959, Brady actually appeared for and was offered a clinical job in Millwort, a wholesale chemical distribution company. And Gorton, he was regarded by his colleagues as quiet, punctual, 
but he was a short temper. Um, he read books and kind of sort of kept to himself. And uh, he rode his bike. It's a little motorbike club uh, that he was in called the Tiger Cub Motorcycle Gang, um, which he would use to visit pennies. Ian and Myra's plans for robbing came to nothing, but they became interested in photography, which, I mean, I guess you can look at that as an upside, right? Um, because they became interested in photography, Ian became, he was already, he already owned a box of brownies, which was used to take photos of Mary and her dog and puppets, but he upgraded to a more sophisticated model as he purchased lights and a dark room equipment, dark room equipment. The pair took photos of each other for the time would be considered explicit. Samara so uh, demonstrated a marked change for her earlier, more shy and, and well-kept image. Next coming years, they decided to go on a very um, interesting spree. Not a shopping spree that most people are used to, but um, Myra claimed that Ian began to talk about committing the perfect murder. And this was around July 1963. And they often would speak to, at the time, they spoke to a Arthur um, who published a novel named Compulsion, which eventually turned into a movie later on. And again, this was just uh, a fantasy of Ian's. Um, this story specifically tells about a case of two young men from good families who attempted to commit the perfect murder of a 12-year-old boy and escape the death penalty because of their age. Around 1963, Ian had moved in with Myra at her grandmother's house. And um, on the 12th of July, 1963, the two of them committed their first murder. Um, the victim was Reedan, who basically attended school with Myra's younger sister and had also been in a short relationship with um, David Smith, a local boy with three criminal convictions for minor crimes. Police found one who had seen Reed before his disappearance. And although the 15-year-old boy, David, was questioned by police, he was cleared of any involvement in his death. The second victim that they had was by the name of Kilbride. And he was actually killed on the 23rd of November, 1963. A huge search 
was undertaken with 700 statements taken and 500 missing posters printed eight days after he failed to return home. 2,000 people went to go look for this young man in wasted land and different buildings. Myra hired a vehicle a week after Kilbride was went missing. Myra hired a, a vehicle. Myra hired a vehicle a week after Kilbride went missing. And again, on the 21st of December, 1963, apparently to make sure the brutal sight had not been disturbed in February of 1963, she brought a second hand Austin Travelers soon after trading it for a minivan. Brent disappeared on 16 the 16th of June 1964. His stepfather Jimmy Johnson became a suspect in the two years following Brent's disappearance. Johnson had taken Johnson, the father of the young man whose van was traded with Myra, had been questioned. And um, detective search under the floorboards of the Johnson's house, basically discovering in the road work connection, it extended to search the entire street. There was a, another victim by the name of Morlene Hindley, more Marine Hindley, married to David Smith. On August the 15th, 1964, the marriage was a hasty arrangement and uh, performed at the register office. None of the Henley relatives attended. Myra did not approve of the marriage and her mother was embarrassed. Maureen, which is the baby sister of Myra, uh, was about seven months pregnant. The newlyweds had moved to into Smith's father's house. The next day, Ian suggested that the four take a day trip to Windermore. This was the first time Ian and um, David had properly met. Ian was apparently impressed by David's demeanor. The two talked about society, the disturbing of wealth, and the possibility of, uh, you know, doing another robbing, and the possibility of robbing another bank. David was real impressionable. Of course, he was younger than Ian, and basically, Ian was impressed by David who throughout the day had paid for food, wine, and everything on this little day trip that they took. 
The trip to the Lake District was the first of many outings. Um, Ian was apparently jealous of their relationship, but became close to her sister. In 1964, Ian, Henley, her mother, and Ian were rehoused as part of the post-war slum clearance in Manchester to 16 Wardle Brook Avenue in the new overspill estate of Hartsley, Myra, and um, Ian became friends with a Patricia Hodges, an 11-year-old girl who lived at 12 Waddle Brook Avenue, so not that far. Um, Patricia accompanied the two on their trips to the collection place and sometimes many householders on the new estate did not improve their sport in their collection plate accompanied them in so many different uh outings and grocery stores and things of that nature um she remained one of the ones that was unharmed with only living a few doors away from, you know, where they reside. Eventually, she became one of the ones that was harmed, another victim. And um, she disappeared. And her disappearance would have been easily solved because they were not that far from each other. Early on Boxing Day, um, Myra left her grandmother's. Myra left her grandmother at a relative's house and refused to allow her back to the house that night. On that same day, Downing disappeared from the fun fair. Despite the huge search, she was not found. The following day, Myra brought her grandmother back home. By February 1965, Patricia had stopped by. She visited the house where David Smith, which is the husband of Myra's sister, Miriam, and um, David was still a regular visitor of the of. Myra and Ian. Ian gave David books to read, and the two discussed robberies and murders. On Myra's 23rd birthday, her sister and brother-in-law, who had been, who had until the living, who had, who had the relatives. Um, basically block the flat and the two begin the two couples begin to see each other more regularly but usually only on Ian's terms 
So after Myra's 23rd birthday, which they had a big party, they started becoming regular visitors. During the 1990s, Myra uh, claimed that she took a part in killings only because Ian had drugged her and was blackmailing her with pornographic pictures he had taken of her. And he had threatened to kill her younger sister, Miriam, in 2008 and uh, solicited uh, Andrew McCoo, the reporter. And um, Myra told him, I ought to have been hung. I deserve it. My crimes was worse than Ian because I enticed the children and they would have never entered the car without my role. I've always regarded myself as worse than Ian in all of our crimes. End quote. Now, there were a series of There was a series of five major murders. There were a series of five major murders. Paulina, who was one of their murders in July the 12th, 1963. Um, Brad, Ian told Myra that he wanted to commit the perfect murder. Remember, I was telling you about that earlier, how they used to read books about it. Um, after work, he told her to drive a borrowed van around. He followed on his motorcycle. Then he would spot the most likely victim. He would flash his headlights. Driving down the street, they saw a young girl. And um, Ian would signal Myra, who did not stop because she recognized the little girl was the eight-year-old neighbor's, the eight-year-old uh, neighbor's daughter. Sometimes around like 7.30 on another street, Ian signaled Myra to stop for the 16-year-old Paulina, a schoolmate of Myra's sister. On the way to the dance, Henley offered Paulina a lift. At various times, Ian gave conflicted statements about the extent to which she versus Ian were responsibly for Paulina's sake being selected as their first official victim. But she said she felt there would be less attention given to the disappearance of teenagers than a missing eight-year-old. So that is why she rode past the eight-year-old, not because it was the neighbor, uh, not because it was the neighbor's child. Once Paulina got into the van, Ian asked her help in search 
for an expensive lost glove. Paulina agreed, and they drove there. Bradley arrived on his motorcycle um, and told Paulina he would help in the search. And later claimed that she waited in the van while claimed that she waited in the van while Ian took Paulina onto the property. Ian returned alone after 30 minutes and took Myra to the spot where Paulina lied, dying. Paulina's clothes were everywhere and she was nearly decapitated by two cuts to the throat including a four inch incision across her voice box inflicted with considerable force and on to which the collar of her coat and a throat chain had been pushed when Myra asked Ian whether he had raped Paulina, his reply was, of course I did. Myra stayed with Paulina while Ian retrieved a, a spade he had hid nearby on a previous visit. They returned to the van and buried Paulina. In Ian's account, Myra was not only present for the attack, but participating in the sexual assault. So in the back of their mind, they feel like, you know what I'm saying? We, we robbed together, we killed together, we fucked together. Um, yeah. Fucking sickos. <laughs> the second murder that they would officially commit together um, on the evening of November the 23rd, 1963. All right. So. All right. So. Um, on an early evening, November the 23rd, 1963, at the Ashton Underlie Market, Ian and Myra offered a 12-year-old by the name of John Kilbride, who I told you all about a little bit about earlier, says that his parents might worry that he was just basically staying out too late. They also promised him a bottle of soda. Once Kilbride was inside, Myra forced Myra forced him in the car and Ian said that they would have to make a detour to their home for the soda. And in route he suggested another detour and this time to search for the glove that Ian had lost in the house. When they reached for when they got closer to the home, Ian took um, Ian took John into the house with him. 
and Myra waited in the car. Ian sexually assaulted John and tried to slit his throat with like a six-inch blade to basically separate it. He strangled him with a shoelace. And that was the end of little John. There was another victim by the name of Keith Bennett. June 16, 1964. <laughs> Ian asked a 12-year-old Keith, who was he? Like, where were you going? And of course, he was going to his grandmother's house in Manchester for helping loading some boxes into her base, her pickup. After which, she said she would drive him home. Ian was in the back of the van. She drove to a little cut and went off with Keith, supposedly to look for a lost glove. After about 30 minutes, Ian returned alone carrying a spade that had been hidden there earlier. And in response, Myra's question, she said that he had sexually assaulted Keith and strangled him with a piece of string. So each and every murder that they committed thus far was basically sexual assault, looking for a glove, and it was pieced together where he buried the bodies together with a spade. And for those who don't know, spades is a interesting game, but he had The next victim was Leslie Ann Downey. Um, Myra and Ian uh, visited a playground around December the 26th, 1964, and they noticed a little 10-year-old Leslie, who she was by herself. They approached her and deliberately dropped some shopping they were carrying. So they basically dropped something and then asked her to help take the packages in their car as if they needed some any fucking help. And then to their home. At the house, Leslie was undressed, gagged, and forced to pose for photographic photographs before being raped and killed, perhaps strangled with a piece of string, and later uh, maintained that she went to fill the bath water and found her dead when she returned and claimed that um, Myra, uh, Myra killed Leslie. The following morning, Myra and Ian drove the body by the moor and buried her naked with her clothes at her feet in a shallow grave. And a lot of things that I've heard thus far mostly maintain that, you know, killers do certain things to show some type of remorse. And by doing that, that was their way of remorse. 
Now, on a, another killing um, that happened in Manchester by the two duo on the evening of October the 6th, 1965, Ian and Myra drove to the train station. And I feel like this is where they kind of sort of knew that their killing spree or their perfect killing spree, as they would say, was coming to an end. So they went a little outside and drove to this train station. A few minutes later, of course, uh, Ian reappeared in company with a 17-year-old by the name of Edwards Evans. And he appeared engineer he was an engineer who um, worked in another little part of town to whom he introduced Myra as his sister they drove to Ian and Myra's home back in Hartsley Chester where they would relax over a bottle of wine (laughs) at this point Ian uh sent Myra to go get David, the husband of Myra's younger sister. Ian's family had not approved of Myra marrying David, who had seven basically they knew David was an ain't shit nigga. And at this point, they had proven time and time again that David Smith, who had married um, Myra's younger sister, he ain't shit. And he ain't never going to be shit. But this is where he came into play. Throughout the previous years, Ian had been cultivated at the friendship that him and David had, Ian and David. And then Ian sometimes would increasingly worry about Myra as she felt like she was scared for her safety being around Ian. So basically, Ian returned with Smith. Well, Ian returned with David and told him to wait outside for the signal. A flashing light. When the signal came, Smith knocked on the door. And was met by Ian, who had asked if he had come for the miniature wine bottles. And left in the kitchen and says that he was going to collect the wine. David told the police, (laughs) I waited about a minute or two. Then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman kind of real high pitch then the screams carried on one after another really really loud then I heard Myra shout then I heard Myra shout Dave help him very loud when I ran in I just stood inside the living room and I saw the young lad He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch. And his legs were on the floor. He was facing upward. And was standing over him, facing him. 
with his legs on either side of the young lad's leg. The lad was still screaming and Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was terrible. A hard blow. It sounded horrible. David then watched Ian throttle Evans with a large electrician cord. Ian sprained his ankle in the struggle. Evans' body was too heavy for David to carry to the car on his own. So he wrapped it in a plastic bag. He So he wrapped it in a plastic sheet and put it in the spare bedroom. Now, even though Myra's family did not approve of David, the brother-in-law, he was the one that went to the police to tell them this gruesome story of what happened. With that being said, David agreed to return the following morning with his All right, so Myra Henley was born in Crumplesaw on the 23rd of July, 1942, and raised in Gorton, like the working class area of Manchester. Her parents, Nellie and Bob Henley, um, were kind of sort of alcoholics, and they would beat her on the regular when she was a young child. And the family house was not well kept, and Henley was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double. The living situation basically deteriorated her future when um, Myra's sister, when Myra's sister was born on August in August um, 1946. So she began to share a twin one mattress with her sister. Like I said, she slept next to her parents. Um, when Myra, like a year later, Myra then was five. And of course, she sent she was sent to her grandmother's house to live nearby. Myra's father had to serve uh, a couple of years in the Second World War. And he was stationed in North America, Cyprus, and Italy. He had been known in the army as a hard man. And he was expected his daughters to be equally as tough. He taught her how to fight and said that and insisted that she stuck up for herself. 
when uh, Myra was about eight, a local boy scratched her cheek, drawing blood. She burst into tears and ran to her father, who threatened <laughs> to leather, which is basically whoop their ass. He basically threatened to whoop their ass. Uh, Myra found the boy and knocked him down with a series of punches. Um, so about eight years old, and this was her quote from her journal after she fought the dude, was an old, an eight-year-old, I'd score my first victory. Malcolm, who was basically a professor at um, Cardrift University, written that Myra's relationship with her father was rootless. Um, she was not the only use of violence in the house, but reward for it outside. So she would get rewarded for doing the most horrible things, whooping people's ass, stealing money, stealing just everything so she was taught that violence and crime was basically the way to go no matter what um one of Myra's closest friends was about 13 named Michael Higgins who kind of sort of lived not too far in 1957 he invited her to go swimming with local friends at a swimming pool hole and Myra instead went elsewhere with another friend. Higgins drowned, and Myra's A Good Summer was deeply upset, and she blamed herself um, because she knew that that's where she was originally supposed to be. Um, of course, she collected herself, and his funeral was at St. Francis Monastery in Gordon Lane, where Myra had been a Baptist, a Catholic, in 1942. The long-lasting effort of her mother and her father, who agreed and insisted that uh, Myra be a Baptist, a Catholic, um, but only, only on one condition, that she was not to be sent to a Catholic school her mother did not believe in monks taught was the Catholicism. Myra was increasingly drawn to the Catholic Church after um, she started a Ryder Bro secondary monarch. So she basically took instruction from reception reception into the church soon as her best friend passed away. She took confirmation named she took the confirmation named of Veronica and received her first communion in November 1958. Now Myra's first job was a junior clerk at the local electric electrical engineering firm. She ran errands, made tea, typed, as well as liked enough. When she lost her first week's wages, 
pocketed the other girls and took the collection to replace it. At 17, she was engaged after a short courtship, but called it off several months later after she decided the young man was too immature and unable to provide her with the life she wanted. She took two weeks of, um, she took weekly judo lessons at the local school, but found partners reluctant to train her as she was often slow to release her grip. She took a job, um, at an engineering company in Gordon, but was dismissed after about six months because she was absent a lot. No real reason for that. Now, in January of 1961, the 18-year-old Myra joined the Millwards as a typist. Soon, she became infatuated with a young man by the name of Ian. Y'all remember Ian at the beginning of the story? So this is where they met. Despite learning that Ian had some type of criminal record, she began writing in her journal dates and letting it be known that she was she had a journal. She kind of kept a tab on all the dudes that she dealt with. And um, some of the uh, entries that she would put in her diary uh, were basically more so of Ian, to whom she eventually spoke for the first time on July the 27th. Over the next few months, she continued to make these interesting but grew increasingly delusional over him until December the 22nd when Ian asked her on a date to the movies. Many sources basically state that their dates followed a regular pattern. A trip to the movies, usually to watch an X-rated film, and then back to Myra's house to drink German wine. And then gave her reading material, and the pair spent their nights, their lunch breaks, reading aloud to one another from accounts of Nazi eroticas. It's a little odd thing to want to do, but those two kiddos, they thought that that was something freaking amazing. Um, Myra began uh, emulating the idea of perfection. She bleached her hair blonde and applied a thick lipstick. She expressed her concern at some aspects of Ian's character in a letter to a childhood friend. She mentions an incident where she had been drugged by Ian, but also wrote of her obsession with him. A few months later, she asked her friend to destroy the letter. In her 3,000-word plague parole, written in 1978 and 1979, and it was submitted to the home sanctuary, where basically Myra said within months, he, 
when she was referring to Ian, he had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, that the moon was green, cheese, that the moon was green cheese. Okay, so in this um, diary entry, she basically said within months, he, and she was talking about Ian, had convinced her that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, that the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him such as power of persuasion, end quote. So, Myra began to actually just change up her appearance, wearing uh, more clothes they were considering risque, such as high boots, shorter skirts, leather jackets, 
And the two became less sociable to their colleagues. The couple would regularly go to the library, um, borrowing books on philosophy as well as crime and torture. They also read books by Marquise de Sade. We're not even going to say that. They read these criminal books. Although um, Mara was not qualified to drive, um, she passed her test on November the 7th, 1963, after filming three times. She often hired a van in which the couple planned bank robberies. Ian befriended a guy named George, who was the president of the Rifle Club, and on several occasions visited two local shooting ranges. Um, George, although he was puzzled by her interest, arranged for her to buy a twenty-two rifle gun from a merchant in uh, Manchester. She also asked to join the pistol club as well, but she was a poor shot and allegedly often bad temper. So George told her that she was unsuitable. She did though manage to purchase a 45 and a Smith and West 38. The other members of the club who was um
So, Miss Myra, Myra, uh, Ian and Myra's plans for robbing came to nothing, but they became interested in photography, which, I mean, I guess you can look at that as an upside, right? Um, because they became interested in photography and became, he was already, he already owned a box of brownies, which was used to take photos of Mary and her dog and puppets, but he upgraded to a more sophisticated model as he purchased lights and a dark room equipment. <laughs> And dark room equipment. The pair took photos of each other for the time would be considered explicit. So Myra uh, demonstrated a marked change for her earlier, more shy and, and well-kept image. Now... <laughs> Over the next com over the next coming years, they decided to go on a very um interesting spree. Not a shopping spree that most people are used to, but um Myra claimed that Ian began to talk about committing the perfect murder. And this was around July 1963. And they often would speak to at the time, an Arthur, whose name was um, Livins, and published a, this person had published a novel in um, 1956, a couple of years before they began on this perfect murder spree. And they adopted that action from the book compulsion into a cinema theme that they would do in about 1959 in 1959 it became a movie compulsion so they spoke to a author um, who published a novel named compulsion which eventually turned into a movie later on and again this was just uh a fantasy of Ian's. Um, this story specifically tells about a case of two young men from good families who attempted to commit the perfect murder of a 12-year-old boy and escape the death penalty because of their age. Around 1963, Ian had moved in with Myra at her grandmother's house and um, on the 12th of July, 1963, the two of them committed their first murder. Um, the victim was Reedan, who basically attended school with Myra's younger sister. 
and had also been in a short relationship with um, David Smith, a local boy with three criminal convictions for minor crimes. Police found one who had seen Reed before his disappearance. And although the 15-year-old boy, David, was questioned by police, he was cleared of any involvement in his death. The second victim that they had was by the name of Kilbride. And he was actually killed on the 23rd of November, 1963. A huge search was undertaken with 700 statements taken and 500 missing posters printed. Eight days after he failed to return home, 2,000 people went to go look for this young man in wasted land and different buildings. Myra hired a vehicle a week after Kilbride was went missing. Myra hired a a vehicle. Myra hired a vehicle a week after Kilbride went missing. And again, on the 21st of December, 1963, apparently to make sure the brutal sight had not been disturbed in February of 1963, she brought a second hand Austin Travelers, but soon after it, soon after trading it for a minivan, Brent disappeared on 16, the 16th of June, 1964. His stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, became a suspect of the two-year-old of the his stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, became a suspect in the two years following Brent's disappearance. Johnson had taken... <laughs> Mr. Johnson, the father of the young man whose van was traded with Myra, had been questioned and... um. Detective search under the floorboards of the Johnson's house, basically discovering in the road work connection, it extended to search the entire street. There was a, another victim by the name of Morlene Hindley, more. Marine Henley married to David Smith on August the 15th, 1964. The marriage was a hasty arrangement and uh, performed at the register office. None of the Henley relatives attended. Myra did not approve of the marriage and her mother was embarrassed. Maureen, which is the baby sister of Myra, uh, was about seven months pregnant. The newlyweds had moved to into Smith's father's house. The next day, 
Ian suggested that the four take a day trip to Windermore. This was the first time Ian and um, David had properly met. Ian was apparently impressed by David's demeanor. The two talked about society, the disturbing of wealth, and the possibility of, uh, you know, doing another robbing, and the possibility of robbing another bank. David was real impressionable. Of course, he was younger than Ian. And basically, Ian was impressed by David, who throughout the day had paid for food, wine, and everything on this little day trip that they took. The trip to the Lake District was the first of many outings. Um, Ian was apparently jealous of their relationship but became close to her sister in 1964. Ian Henley, her grandmother, in 1964, Myra, her grandmother, and Ian were rehoused as part of the post-war slum clearance in Manchester to 16 Wardle Brook Avenue in the new overspill estate of Hartsley. Myra and um, Ian became friends with a Patricia Hodges, an 11-year-old girl who lived at 12 Wardle Brook Avenue, so not that far. Um, Patricia accompanied the two on their trips to the collection place and sometimes many householders on the new estate did not improve their sport in their collection plate Patricia accompanied them in so many different uh, outings and grocery stores and things of that nature. Um, she remained one of the ones that was unharmed with only living a few doors away from, you know, where they reside. Eventually, she became one of the ones that was harmed, another victim. And um, she disappeared. And her disappearance would have been easily solved because they were not that far from each other. Early on Boxing Day, um, Myra left her grandmother's. Myra left her grandmother at a relative's house and refused to allow her back to the house that night. Uh, 
on that same day, Downing disappeared from the fun fair. Despite the huge search, she was not found. The following day, Myra brought her grandmother back home. By February 1965, Patricia had stopped by. She visited the house where David Smith, which is the husband of Myra's sister, Miriam, and um, David was still a regular visitor of the of Myra and Ian. <sighs> Ian gave David books to read, and the two discussed robberies and murders. On Myra's twenty third birthday, her sister and brother in law, who had been, who had until the living. Who had, who had the relatives um, basically block the flat, and the two begin, the two couples begin to see each other more regularly, but usually only on Ian's terms. So after Myra's twenty third birthday, which they had a big party. They started becoming regular visitors. During the 1990s, Myra uh, claimed that she took a part in killings only because Ian had drugged her and was blackmailing her with pornographic pictures he had taken of her. And he had threatened to kill her younger sister, Miriam, in 2008 and uh, solicited uh, Andrew McCoo, the reporter. And um, Myra told him, I ought to have been hung. I deserve it. My crimes was worse than Ian. Because I enticed the children and they would have never entered the car without my role. I have always regarded myself as worse than Ian in all of our crimes. End quote. Now, there were a series of There was a series of five major murders. There were a series of five major murders. Paulina, who was one of their murders in July the 12th, 1963. Um, Brad, Ian told Myra that he wanted to commit the perfect murder. Remember, I was telling you about that earlier, how they used to read books about it. Um, after work, he told her to drive a borrowed van around. He followed on his motorcycle. Then he would spot the most likely victim. He would flash his headlights driving down the street. They saw a young girl. 
and um and would signal Myra, who did not stop because she recognized the little girl was the eight-year-old neighbor's the eight-year-old uh neighbor's daughter. Sometimes around like 7:30 on another street, Ian signaled Myra to stop for the 16-year-old Paulina. A schoolmate of Myra's sister on the way to the dance. Henley offered Paulina a lift at various times and gave conflicted statements about the extent to which she versus Ian were responsibly for Paulina's sake being selected as their first official victim. But she said she felt there would be less attention given to the disappearance of teenagers than a missing eight-year-old. So that is why she rode past the eight-year-old, not because it was the neighbor, uh, not because it was the neighbor's child. Once Paulina got into the van, Ian asked her help in search for an expensive lost glove. Paulina agreed and they drove there. Bradley arrived on his motorcycle um, and told Paulina he would help in the search. Ian later claimed that she waited in the van while no. Myra later claimed that she waited in the van while Ian took Paulina onto the property. Ian returned alone after 30 minutes and took Myra to the spot where Paulina lied, dying. Paulina's clothes were everywhere. And she was nearly decapitated by two cuts to the throat, including a four-inch incision across her voice box, inflicted with considerable force, and onto which the collar of her coat and a throat chain had been pushed when... Myra asked Ian whether he had raped Paulina. His reply was, of course I did. Myra stayed with Paulina while Ian retrieved a, a spade he had hid nearby on a previous visit. They returned to the van and buried Paulina. In Ian's account, Myra was not only present for the attack, but participating in the sexual assault. So in the back of their mind, they feel like, you know what I'm saying, we, we robbed together, we killed together, we fucked together. Um, yeah. Fucking sickos. <laughs> the 
second murder that they would officially commit together um, on the evening of November the 23rd, 1963, at a market, they grabbed someone by the name of Ashton. Um, Ian and Myra offered the 12-year-old. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, so, all right, so, um, on an early evening, November the 23rd, 1963, at the Ashton Underlie Market, Ian and Myra offered a 12-year-old by the name of John Kilbride, who I told you all about, a little bit about earlier, says that his parents might worry that he was just basically staying out too late. They also promised him a bottle of soda. Once Kilbride was inside, Myra forced Myra forced him in the car, and Ian said that they would have to make a detour to their home for the soda. And in route, he suggested another detour, and this time to search for the glove that Ian had lost in the house. When they reached for, when they got closer to the home, Ian took, um, Ian took John into the house with him and Myra waited in the car. Ian sexually assaulted John and tried to slit his throat with the six inch to separate, like a six-inch blade to basically separate it. He strangled him with a shoelace. And that was the end of little John. There was another victim by the name of Keith Bennett. June 16, 1964. <laughs> Ian asked a 12-year-old Keith, who was he, like, where were you going? And, of course, he was going to his grandmother's house in Manchester for helping loading some boxes into her base, her pickup. After which, she said she would drive him home. Ian was in the back of the van. She drove to a little cut and went off with Keith supposedly to look for a lost glove. After about 30 minutes, Ian returned alone carrying a spade that had been hidden there earlier. And in response, Myra's question, she said that he had sexually assaulted Keith and strangled him with a piece of string. So each and every murder that they committed thus far was basically sexual assault looking for a glove and it was pieced together where he buried the bodies together with a spade and for those who don't know spades is a interesting game but he had a spade <laughs> the next victim was Leslie Ann Downey um Myra and Ian uh, visited 
a playground around December the 26th, 1964, and they noticed a little 10-year-old Leslie, who she was by herself. They approached her and deliberately dropped some shopping. They were carrying, so they basically dropped something and then asked her to help take the packages in their car as if they needed some any fucking help and then to their home at the house leslie was undressed gagged and forced to pose for photographic photographs before being raped and killed perhaps strangled with a piece of string and later uh, maintained that she went to fill the bath water and found her dead when she returned and claimed that um, Myra, uh, Myra killed Leslie. The following morning, Myra and Ian drove the body by the moor and buried her naked with her clothes at her feet in a shallow grave. And a lot of things that I've heard thus far mostly maintain that, you know, killers do certain things to show some type of remorse. And by doing that, that was their way of remorse. Now, on another killing um, that happened in Manchester by the two duo, on the evening of October the 6th, 1965, Ian and Myra drove to the train station. And I feel like this is where they kind of sort of knew that their killing spree or their perfect killing spree, as they would say, was coming to an end. So they went a little outside and drove to this train station. A few minutes later, of course, uh, Ian reappeared in company with a 17-year-old by the name of Edwards Evans. And he appeared engineer. He was an engineer who um, worked in another little part of town to whom he introduced Myra as his sister. They drove to Ian and Myra's home back in Hartsley, Chester, where they would relax over a bottle of wine. <laughs> At this point, Ian uh, sent Myra to go get David, the husband of Myra's younger sister. Ian's family had not approved of Myra marrying David, who had seven or basically, they knew David was an ain't shit nigga. And at this point, they had proven time and time again that David Smith, who had married um, Myra's younger sister, he ain't shit and he ain't never going to be shit. But this is where he came into play. Throughout the previous years, Ian had been cultivated at the friendship that him and David had. 
Ian and David. And then Ian sometimes would increasingly worry about Myra as she felt like she was scared for her safety being around Ian. So basically, Ian returned with Smith. Well, Ian returned with the David and told him to wait outside for the signal. A flashing light. When the signal came, Smith knocked on the door and was met by Ian, who had asked if he had come for the miniature wine bottles and left in the kitchen and says that he was going to collect the wine. David told the police, I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, kind of real high pitch. Then the screams carried on one after another, really, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him very loud when I ran in I just stood inside the living room and I saw the young lad he was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor he was facing upward and he was standing over him facing him with his legs on either side of the young lad's leg. The lad was still screaming and Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was terrible. A hard blow. It sounded horrible. David then watched Ian throttle Evans with a large electrician cord. Ian sprained his ankle in the struggle. Evans' body was too heavy for David to carry to the car on his own. So he wrapped it in a plastic bag. He So he wrapped it in a plastic sheet and put it in the spare bedroom. Now, even though Myra's family did not approve of David, the brother-in-law, he was the one that went to the police to tell them this gruesome story of what happened. With that being said, David agreed to return the following morning with his Georgia. All right, so David decides to go back to the house um, to basically help transport 
Evan's body to the car before disposing um before disposing it. He arrived to the house around like 3 a.m. He asked his wife for a cup of tea, which he drank before vomiting until her, which she had witnessed around six in the morning, having waiting till daylight and armed himself with a screwdriver and a butter knife just in case Ian was planning to intercept him. Uh, just in case Ian had planned on, you know, trying to fuck with him. David called the police from a phone box, from a payphone. David called the police from a payphone. Um, waited. David called the police from a payphone. He was picked up by a police car from the payphone and was taken to the police station where he had told officers what he had witnessed that night. Superintendent Bob, <laughs> Superintendent Bob, <laughs> this, is not, um, this is not funny. Um, Bob, the who was basically the police department, he went to go search um, the flat of um, Myra and Ian and was accompanied by detectives and sergeant who um, wore disguises of a delivery person um, all over the top of their uniform. He asked Myra at the back door if her husband was home. But she denied that she had a husband or that a man was in the house. Bob identified himself. Myra led him into the living room where Ian was lying and writing to his employer about his ankle injury. Bob explained that he was investigating an act of violence involving guns that was reported to have taken place the previous night. Myra denied that there had been any violence and allowed the police to look around the house. And then the police asked for the key to the locked spare bedroom. Myra said it was her workplace, but after police offered to take her to retrieve the key, Ian told her to hand it over. When the police returned to the living room, they arrested Ian on suspicion of murder. And Ian was getting dressed and he said, Eddie, I had a row and the situation just got out of hand. So basically he was trying to put it out there like, my nigga, we just got the fight and it just got out of hand. No, my nigga, you murdered somebody. Like, hmm. Let's not play these games, Ian. You murdered somebody. So they did like a thorough analysis of everything that pretty much happened. And um, Mara was not initially arrested when Ian was. Um, she demanded to go with Ian to the police station, um, taking her dogs as well. She wanted everybody to go. If we going, we going all together. 
Um, she refused to make any statements about uh, Evan's death beyond claiming it was an accident and was allowed to go home on the condition that she returned the next day. Over four days, Myra visited her employer and asked uh, to be fired so that she would have the ability to complete such she basically wanted to get fired from her job to get unemployment. Doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> she wanted to get fired to get unemployment. And on one of these occasions, uh, Myra found an envelope belonging to Ian, which she burned in an ashtray. She claimed she did not open it, but believed it had contained contain plans for bank robberies. On October the 11th, she too was arrested and taken into custody for being an accessory to the murder of Edward Evans. And she basically tried to say, no, I had nothing to do with it. Police searched the house and found old exercise books with, uh, the names of the other people that they killed. Uh, remember John Kilbride, which made Ian and Myra a suspect in the disappearance and the involvement of him. Um, Ian told police that he and Evans had fought, but instead that he and David had murdered Evans and Myra had only done what she was told. So basically, he realized that David was the snitch and he was trying to get him. Are you coming to jail with me, buddy? No, sir. Um, David said, I mean, David said that Ian had asked him to return anything to incriminate anything incriminating, such as the dodgy books, which Ian then packed into a suitcase. He had no idea what else was in the suitcase or what was contained in there. Um, where they might thought that mentioned that Ian had... Um, had a thing about railroad stations. Um, a search of uh, the luggage that was in the office turned up the case, the suitcase. Um, it turned out to be the suitcase of Mr. Evans, the man that they basically slaughtered. And the claim ticket was later found in Myra's praying book. Inside of one of the cases, among assorted costumes, notes, photos, negatives, nine pornographic photos that was taken of Leslie. Y'all remember they took pictures of Leslie at the beginning of the story um, with the scarf tied around her mouth. So they did explicit photos and they had, you know, made sure. And a 16-minute audio tape recording of the girl screaming and pleading for help. Leslie's mother later confirmed that the recording, too, was her daughter. Officers uh, inquired 
the neighbors to the 12-year-old Pat Hodges, who had several occasions occasions being taken by Ian and Myra. And at this point, their favorite site was A635 Road. Police immediately began to search the area, and on October the 16th, they found and they found on October the 16th, they found an arm uh, who ended up being killed by So he basically decapitated in the area where they would go and bury the bodies. Remember, I told you at the beginning of the story, he would leave a spade to remind him of where he left the bodies. Um, the next day, uh, they identified Leslie's body, who was still kind of visible, identifiable, and her mo- her mother was able to identify the clothes that were buried at the bottom of the shallow grave that they had dug for her. Um, along with that, what else was in the suitcase? Um, more pictures, different scenes. David had told the police that um, Ian uh, was a photographic proof of multiple murders. David had told the police that he knew that um, Ian had pictures and proof of multiple murders um, and decided to remove the apparent innocent landscape from the house. It was appealed to locals for assistance finding locations to match photographies. So basically, David put it out there that Ian was not your average person. He wanted to be out there with the people. So he would tell, you know, different assortments of tourists that he was a photographer. And that's how they ended up killing more people. But Around, like, October the 21st, they ended up finding a badly de- decomposed body, Kilbriar, which he was identified by his uh, clothing. The same day of being held for the murders of Evan, Ian and Myra appeared in court, and they were getting charged with Leslie's murder. Each were brought before the court separately and remained in custody for a week. They made a two-minute appearance on the 28th of October and were again, they remained in custody because that's when they ended up finding more bodies. The investigation um, of officers suspected that Myra and Ian of the murders Brian, I, Ian, and Myra's murders of other missing children and teenagers who had disappeared in the areas around Manchester over the previous years. And the search for the bodies continued, and they kept discovering more bits and pieces of Kilbriar's body. 
But with the winter coming in, they just called off the search in about November. So between October to November, they were finding more bits and pieces of this kid's body. They presented the evidence of the recording and admitted to taking like pictures of Leslie, but insist, insist that she had nothing to do with bringing her back to the house by two men who took it away again by mm-hmm. December. Myra basically saying that she had nothing to do with Leslie's death. She stated that she had no sexual intercourse with her. She did not decapitate her body. She did not record anything, but let alone she was on the recording. Um, December the 2nd, 1965, Ian had been charged with murders of Kilbride, Leslie, and Evans. Myra had been charged for the murders of just Leslie and Evans just for being an accessory. No, she was charged for murders for um, Leslie and Evans, but she was charged as an accessory for Kilbriars because she stated she she had nothing to do with that. During December the 6th, Ian was charged with murders with murders of basically Evans, Kilbriar, Leslie, and Myra was still only convicted of just the murders of Evans and Leslie. As well known, um, knowledge of Ian and how he killed Kilbride, one of the other little kids. The prosecution's opening statement was held in camera rather than in open court. The defense asked for similar stipulation, but was refused. The proceedings continued before three magistrates in Hyatt over like an 11-day period in December, and it ended in a pair who were committed in trial in Chester. Many of the photographers had taken Ian and Henry Many photographers um, had taken pictures of Ian and Myra for Myra's dog puppets, sometimes as a puppy, to help date the fo- to help date the photos. Detectives had um, surgeons examine the dog to determine his age. And examination required a general aesthetic, which Puppet did not recover. Um, Myra was furious and accused the police of murdering her dog. So basically, Myra, it was like this dog named Puppet was like her emotional support dog. They were just trying to determine, like, how old was this dog? What was going on? Did he eat some of the bones of the dead kids? They didn't know. But all in all, the dog ended up dying. Puppet. Ooh. Oh, poor puppet. And, of course, Myra was very upset. Um, she wrote her mother. Um, basically, this was a quote from her. Um, she stated that, I feel as though my heart's been torn into pieces. 
I don't think anything could hurt me more than this has. The only consulting, the only consultation, the only consolidation is that someone might have got hold of puppet and hurt him. She was a fucking psycho. I don't care how you look at it. She was a fucking psycho. All right, so this trial became like a 14-day period. It started on the 19th of April, 1966. The courtroom was filled with security cameras to protect Ian and Myra, who were charged of murdering Evans, uh, Leslie Kilbriar. Bradley's defense and Myra's defense basically explored their their upbringing. David Smith, who was basically the prosecuting witness before trial, he went on to the world news and was offered like over a thousand dollars to the rights of his story. So he basically reaped the benefits of everything. Um both Ian and Myra pled not guilty. Um, Ian basically testified for over eight hours, and um, Myra testified for about six of those. And um, Ian admitted to hitting Evans with an axe, but claimed that someone else killed Evans. Pointing to the pathological statement that um, Evans' death had been basically that he was strangled. So they kept saying that Evans, the last person that they killed, was actually strangled and it wasn't by him. All in all, what's today's lessons? Let's think. Today's lesson, kids, are <sighs> love is fucking hard. That's the only thing I can say. Love is hard. And love was hard for both of them. It ended up, both of them in the slammer. Ian ended up committing suicide somehow, some way in prison. My best bet was by a shoestring. That's what I'm thinking. Um, Myra, she ended up losing her fucking mind in a mental ward. She passed away. But, uh, yeah. Kids, love is hard. Be careful who you give it to. Oh, no. That's probably not what I want to say. Alright, so. This episode was a little ooh, intense. I'm going to leave y'all with this decent quote that I feel like is befitting for this episode from our good old friend MLK Jr. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I think that's where I'm going to leave you guys. Think about it. As always, it's always going to be a beautiful day on the south side of GA. Gotta go pay some bills, y'all.
Whew.